This is the place where we talk about preparing for and navigating adulthood, a space for autistic individuals, families, professionals, and other community stakeholders to get information and resources when it comes to this particular area. We talk about employment, education, high school, college, independence, all of those areas, and connect you to people and organizations that are doing work in this community, as well as share some resources that we've created here at Autism Grown Up. I'm your host, Dr. Tara Regan, and I'm also the executive director of Autism Grown Up. You can check us out at autismgrownup.com and continue listening to this episode. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Autism Grown Up podcast. This episode is brought to you by our advocates at Patreon. Become a supporter of future episodes and get early access to our podcast episodes, other resources from Autism Grown Up, and specific Q's and A's, and so much more. To do that, go to patreon.com slash autismgrownup to learn more and help us keep the show running. Today, I'll be sharing my interview with Ray Hemachandra. He is the father of Nicholas Hamachandra, who is a 19-year-old autistic adult who also has intellectual disability, or as Ray refers to, intellectually disabled. Ray and his son are based in Western North Carolina, where he speaks and writes about autism and neurodiversity. In this episode, we take a deep dive in neurodiversity and what he refers to as authentic self-determination. This is a great episode for parents and professionals supporting individuals on the spectrum who are growing up because supporting self-determination in support networks are important to think about well before an autistic person becomes an adult. And this is also a great episode for autistics, young and old, to share with their family members to help them get a better sense of what it's like to be in your support network. Now let's jump into my interview with Ray Hemachandra. All right. Um, thanks for joining us, Ray. Can you tell us a little bit about you and your work in the autism community? Of course. So I am a business communications and HR consultant, uh, and I had a background in publishing. I worked in books and magazines and even going further back in newspapers. And in 2000, my son Nicholas was born, and Nicholas is autistic. That's led to a lot of work in a lot of different spaces. Currently, that includes a lot of organizational work. I've been on the Advisory Council for Family Support Network of Western North Carolina, working with families for 12 years. I'm on the board of directors of Liberty Corner Enterprises, which supports uh, adults with intellectual disabilities, including autism, with res residential supports and living with living supports and employment supports. I'm on the Consumer Family and Advisory Committee for VIA Health, which is the LME MCO that is governmental organization that oversees funding for mental health, intellectual disability, and substance abuse in 22 counties in the western part of the state. I'm on Western Carolina's University's Autism Advisory Board, which specifically is working on Project Interact, which is a grant for interprofessional training for graduate students in uh, speech pathology, psychology, and special education. I am on the advisory committee for Camp Lakey Gap, which is an autism camp in the western part of the state in Black Mountain. I am on the steering committee for Ziffing for Autism, a fundraiser in autism, and I also do a lot of speaking at colleges and universities, uh, in classes, on campus, but also at conferences. Wow, wow, just oh. incredible. <laughs> just a few things. 
write a blog. Occasionally blog about autism on my website as well, which may be the thing I'm best known for. Yeah, that's how I found you or rediscovered you because I've known your son, Nicholas, through um, Camp Royal many, many years ago. Nicholas loved Camp Royal and he loves Camp Leaky Gap as well. And he's also been to First Shine, which was a camp held locally, uh, Dragonfly Forest, which is an autism camp and other other special needs. He's been to a bunch of camps, um, Victory Junction, right? Wow. That's, that's a camp kind of in the middle part of the state. And, and because Nicholas has, has some co-occurring diagnoses, he's been able to attend that camp as well. He loves summer camp. And for me, from my, my perception, is summer camp has really been one of those sh- uh, shift in development places where he built a sense of identity and self outside of family and local community that was really significant. And definitely, especially during this kind of key development of life, because when was, how long has he been attending summer camps? He has been attending summer camps since the summer of 2007. So Nicholas, when he went then, was six years old. He was six years old when he started. He did his first five-night camp, uh, which was Camp Mountain Adventure in Black Mountain, North Carolina, which was an autism society of North Carolina camp, although but then later converted into Camp Lakey Gap. And I remember very vividly dropping him off at camp. He was screaming by the time we left because I spent too long talking to the counselor. The counselor had questions about Nicholas. And he was like grabbing onto the door and he ripped off the screen of the, the door of his cabin. And I waited down the hill. There's a barbecue place down the hill from, from where the camp's located. And I waited there for the call saying, come and get him, we can't handle him. And that call never came. And a week later I picked him up or five, five days, six days later, I picked him up and he had loved camp so much and he's gone back ever since and he's never ripped off a screen door since. Ever since. Wow, that's like such a, um, I feel like that's a classic camp story and I bet that like was just something that really pulled at you, especially you feeling like he's so young, this is the first time he's been away from you. Um, we often have parents um, listening to this who have kids like kind of right around that age and they're starting to think about adulthood. So what would you say to someone who is worried about that situation happening and um, if you could give any thoughts to what has um, happened since? Right. I've, I've known a lot of families that are reluctant to send their child to camp. They don't know whether or not the camp can handle their child. They don't know that their child's quote unquote ready for whatever that is. I went to camp when I was a child and I love camp so much. And I went started pretty pretty young and I went for eight weeks every summer for five years from when I was seven to twelve. Seven to or maybe it was eight to twelve. My birthday falls in the late part of the summer, so I get confused exactly what years I was, what ages. But uh so obviously, you know, Eight weeks so when you're eight years old is a long time, but I knew how significant that was developmentally. And for Nicholas, same ambition, uh, that it could really develop who he is outside of me and outside of us. And it comes to trusting the professionals who do this. They're very good with the two autism camps we have. I'm aware of, there may be others, but the two I'm aware of, it's Camp, uh, which is an hour south of Chapel Hill in Pittsburgh and Camp Lake. Gap, which is in Black Mountain, uh, North Carolina, and both coming out of the same 
they, they used to be the same camp and splitting off as we talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, they're such excellent professionals at both camps that if you're hesitant, you need to talk to the camp director, talk to the folks at camp and have a, have a discussion, have a conversation about it. Because I know no one who sent their kids to camp who regretted it. Yeah, I agree. I can even just vouch for both sides of that because I have uh, two brothers on the spectrum and the older one of the two, Tyler, he went to camp for the first time when he was 18. I think it was around 18. It was wow. of the years too. And that was a really, really tough decision for especially my mom. And I don't think she would have done it if I hadn't already been working at Camp Royal. I can see why that's reassuring. You know, for Nicholas, my son, my son is autistic. He also has obsessive compulsive disorder as a comorbid diagnosis. He has expressive and receptive speech disorder. He has tic disorder. He has intellectual disability. He had a stroke in 2014 that uh, left him with aphasia, uh, asymmetry in his face, lack of clarity in speech, some aggression. And in the end of 2016, uh, he was struck with a severe episode of uh, sev uh, severe pan uh, pancolitis, ulcerative pancolitis. Uh, which requires infusion medications every eight weeks. And despite all this, when he was younger, before those medical uh, co-conditions, and when he's older with those, there's never been any hesitancy to send him to camp. He loves mm -hmm. camp. This is the stuff of your life, the stuff that makes you happy. Camp makes him happy. So why would you hesitate to make your child happy as a child or as an adult? You want them to have that experience. Yeah, and I've seen such great gains just from being in a different type of setting with peers like around your age, um, with counselors who are incredibly supportive and are with you every step of the way, every single day, every single second. Um, even with my brother, Tyler, we he has been a very selective eater in terms of food. He was definitely in the camp of chicken nuggets and fries from McDonald's as much as possible, and he would not venture into anything green, leafy, or even hamburgers. <laughs> when Nicholas was, was a certain age, he ate five foods. And by five foods, I mean five specific foods. And among those five foods, two of them were uh, McDonald's chicken nuggets and McDonald's french fries. Those were two of the five. I would say that's probably us, too. That was, oh, and then ketchup. Ketchup was the third one. <laughs> <laughs> It was so big, but at Camp Royal, I, I don't know, I just, I got to sit at his table at lunch and his counselor would put together his meals with him and he would, he's also very um, much like a yes guy. He'll say yes to everything unless he's very certain it's a no. And for some reason he said yes to a hamburger and a salad one day at lunch and they brought it out to the table and I was like, oh, let's see what's going to happen here. And he ate it. He loved it. He did not like, <laughs> stop at all to be like, this is disgusting. He had like a go-to sound too whenever he didn't like it. And I think we can, as a, as a takeaway from this conversation, that both of us feel the more camp, the better. Yeah. That's definitely how I feel. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, we veered away for a second. Just <laughs> and I'm always happy to do that because uh, Camp World's very close to my heart. Um, and anytime I get to talk to someone who gets Camp Royal especially is, is always a great time. <laughs> People can feel like they, I know, I feel like camp is such a great model and they've gone to a variety of conferences to share the model with other organizations that are hoping and other faith-based faith organizations too, like 
with Camp Lakey Gap who are trying to do this model with an autism or broadly IDD. And I feel like it's spreading and hopefully more families can get access to something like this and have the chance to be able to send their child or an autistic child or adult to camp. Absolutely. I completely agree. It's a world of a difference. But so we talked a little bit about how involved you are here locally in Western North Carolina and broadly across the state too. And you serve a variety of roles and initiatives when it comes to autism, IDD, and neurodiversity. So what have been some things that you've seen in terms of neurodiversity and autism acceptance when it comes to parental and professional spaces like these? I think autism acceptance, and of course we're talking on World Autism Acceptance Day, yeah. which is also called World Autism Awareness Day, but, but uh, neurodiversity activists tend to use the, the former phrase, which is World Acceptance Day. Mm-hmm. Um, I think acceptance is still an area of struggle in very fundamental ways. By acceptance, I mean accepting the autistic as autistic. That is understanding autism not as something that's happened to your child, that's uh, an affliction that's impacted your child and you need to save your child from it. It's a description of your child. It's just a word, right? So what, what autism is a label, a sign, repetitive thoughts and behaviors, different things that, that fit the diagnostic criteria, but it's just a word. It's not, it's not cancer. It's not something that's happened to your child. Your child is your child with their constellation of behaviors, with their characteristics, with who they are as a person. And now we've applied this label to them. And oftentimes then the family, a parent, I've been a parent, I've been in that situation, it's fighting this word. But what are you fighting against? You're fighting against who your child is. This is your child. So autism acceptance means accepting your child as your child is and not wanting your child to be someone else. Autism doesn't make your child anything. It's just a description of your child. So from there, uh, if you accept that or if you don't, has huge consequence for how you approach parenting a child, how you approach schooling a child, how you approach therapy, so how you get information and help and supports and what they look like. Are you getting supports to help your child be happy in her or his life? Or are you getting supports to change your child into someone he or she is not? That's a very different approach in parenting, right? Mm-hmm. How you access roadmaps for how to how to respond to your child being autistic. You know, that, that's diagnostic information. It doesn't change who your child is, but now there are existing roadmaps, and there are roadmaps that are what's called the traditional medical model, which is basically trying to cure your child of autism. I know the major organizations have gone away from that language over objections, but it's still kind of the upshot of the approach. Or is it trying to support your child or his well-being so they can be a happy person with a full life as they are. You can take any specific instance of that. Let's take flapping, for example. Are we going to approach flapping by trying, trying to extinguish the behavior of flapping when flapping might give the child a stimulation that they need that relaxes them, that makes them feel better, or even makes them happy? Or do we teach others not to bully kids for flapping because really what you're afraid of is that difference will make them stand out that's where acceptance gets in diversity acceptance includes neurodiversity acceptance i think most even when we have a language around acceptance 
autism acceptance. I think some parents will sign on to that. Still, the goals we frame as parents and families, as schools, with outer supports from therapists, really are modeled on the, the autistic child becoming non-autistic. And that's a continuing failure. I think there's, been, there's greater awareness of it. It's a continuing failure in all mainstream institutions. Mm-hmm. The other point I'd make is when, when we think about autism in that way, uh, you know, we're framing autism for the child or the adult, but here for the child, talking about parenting, uh, as being good or bad. And then that becomes central identity, right? Mm-hmm. If we're fighting against who a child is and wanting them to be something other, we're rejecting who they are. Mm-hmm. If we're supporting them and supporting their growth and identity, then they have a much more positive read on themselves. You could be taking the same action and framing it one way to change you into something I want you to be and one way to support you in who you are. And that makes a world of difference in that action. That's an incredible quote. And I think that ultimately is the frame from shifting from deficit focus to um, person-centered and strengths-based or more of like the social model of um, acceptance. I think that's really true. And I would, but I would also say the layer of thinking about autism as good or bad, mm-hmm. right? Uh, now, I guess I suggested at the beginning that it's really neutral. It's not, it's not anything, actually. It's just a label you put on people. But if it's a label that seems as a bad thing and the family sees it as a bad thing and the school sees it as a bad thing, we're trying to change you away from autism, or if autism is a good thing, and that goes to autistic activists later in life, neurodiversity activists who, who claim autism as identity, that's for framing makes a huge difference in a child and adult's experience of life. Mm -hmm. I agree. And then so kind of related to that, then um, what are your thoughts on using terms and concepts such as neurodivergent, autism, disability, and ID? Sure. So each one kind of has its own life. So we'll kind of move through them. Yeah, feel free. So I really use the term neurodiversity. Mm -hmm. I think there's no such thing as neurotypicality, and thus really no such thing as neurodivergent. Because I think the phrase spectrum is often applied to autism. I think we all have our neurologies and none of us experience the internal mind of others. So I don't really think there is such a thing as neurotypical. It might be what's typically expressed, this kind of grouping in the middle about how people act, but many people are masking or shifting behaviors to conform to the norm. That doesn't really say what's going on in their internal neurology. So with autism and with disability, you know, those are both things that have, uh, have movements behind them. Autism acceptance, autism acceptance day, and autism identity. So much done by, so much good work done by autistic adults and, and teens and children uh, in this area. And then disability rights. And disability has an identity. For Nicholas and for many people, the subpopulation here, they have intellectual disability as well. And this is really where my thinking has been lately, thinking about intellectual disability. And what do respect and acceptance look like for intellectually disabled adults and children? How are they given, if if we're we're giving them self-advocacy and agency, how do we give them information without framing the information in a controlling way? How do we give them choices without framing the choices in a controlling way Mm -hmm. so that they have authentic self-determination? I'll give you an example of 
something that happened with Nicholas a few years ago in school. Um, so he, I, I got something saying Nicholas wanted to do snowboarding in the Special Olympics. I, I didn't even know there was snowboarding in the Special Olympics. Apparently there is in the program around here. Yeah. And I was surprised by that since I didn't think Nicholas knew what snowboarding was. And in fact, he didn't know what snowboarding was. Uh, but they had framed it. Nicholas, do you want to snowboard with your friends or do you want to not get to do it? And so, yes, I want to snowboard with my friends was his response. As opposed to saying all the different opportunities at Special Olympics and which one do you want to do? And doing it in a meaningful way where he really knows what those options are and learns what they are. The reason they did it that way is because they only had so many aides in the school and so they needed them all to do the same activity. Mm -hmm. uh, but the principal is that you know he can't actually make an informed choice uh, without really understanding what something is. I'll give another example. They would do um, rallies in the uh, in the gym, uh, pep rallies in the gym. So if you said Nicholas, do you want to go to the gym and cheer with your friends? He would say yes. Nicholas, do you want to go to the gym? It's going to be really loud and people are going to be making a lot of noise and acting all crazy around you. No. So the framing becomes central to the choice. And as opposed to really letting the, the person understand what the different options are in an experiential way, in a thorough way, and then giving choice often in a visually structured way uh, so that it's meaningful choice, not just words spinning past them. For me, as I look at what agency means for someone who's intellectually disabled, I think a lot of the 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 parental movement, a lot of the autistic advocate and neurodiversity movement really does include intellectually disabled children or adults. They are left out of that conversation. So to me, it requires deep information that's done in a way that, that affords understanding and sometimes takes time. That includes visual structure and visual presentations. And most critically, and this is just where I am with the transition to adulthood here, uh, it's not just involving a parent or a teacher. It's creating a much wider circle of people interacting with this person so, so that different perspectives are taken of this child. I'll give an example, and in my case with Nicholas, I'll give an example. Uh, so, of course, I work with Nicholas very closely, and Nicholas has had a longtime worker who delivers services during the week, and she's central to his life as well. But in addition to our working with Nicholas and trying to teach Nicholas, but also get information from Nicholas and let him participate in decision-making about his own life, we now have other people doing it too. Uh, a few years ago, I uh, drafted an autism mentor for Nicholas. And that person does communication. That person Skypes with Nicholas a couple of times a week. Uh, typically, on, not right now because of COVID-19, we get together fairly regularly and I leave. And that person engages with Nicholas in activities, but also is able to ask Nicholas questions. And maybe the answers are different than what I know. And then we come together in what I call Team Nicholas, but it's actually, I did a training with Plan Institute of Canada and something called Full Circles, where you make a, a, a community support network uh, for the person. This is for adult life. Uh, to, to support the person, but also for the person to support. It's interdependent. And different people drawing out those perspectives gives a much more accurate uh, take on how an individual truly feels and much more fuller information with diverse perspectives coming to that person as opposed to, say, just from me.
mm. where that Nicholas would be guided by my own preferences and wanting to please, and also that the information I get I give Nicholas really comes out of my own perspective and framework, not in a malicious way, but it would be true for everyone. And by expanding that circle and having Nicholas, and this goes way back to the camp part of the conversation, have Nicholas interacting with different people in different circumstances with different perspectives, and then able to express in whatever way a person expresses, Nicholas is, does have language, but this includes for nonverbal people too. They would give feedback in different ways that gives a much more honest portrayal uh, of someone's true desires and wishes and, and then a better expression uh, of their agency. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. I feel like that really captures an application of one of our major pillars when it comes to success in adulthood um, in this transition time too, is uh, having a support network around someone that is incredibly supportive and involved in a diverse group ultimately. So to someone that isn't just the parent or a teacher. Uh, how did you, and I also really think it's really interesting that you recruited an autism mentor. Do you mind getting into that for a second? Sure, I'll, I'll say two things. First is that with that, so this is a person who was on panels for teach. Uh, teach is a, a, a way of, a, it's about visual structure and out of the University of North Carolina, uh, Chapel Hill, but with offices around the state of North Carolina, it's a way of, of supporting autistic individuals with visual structure more than anything. Also really respecting the individual and, and meeting the person where they are. Uh, so this person uh, who became Nicholas's autistic mentor uh, was a young adult who was speaking on some panels. And I was really impressed. It was one of those things that changes the way you think about things for me. And so I got to know this person and we became friends and with Nicholas as well. And then it evolved fairly naturally. I think we all kind of had the idea at the same time of building that connection and even formally structuring it. And that person actually now is in the leadership of an organization in Western North Carolina called Autistics United and creating a mentorship program that's structured is one of the goals of that organization. So I think that's, that's a really exciting possibility and an important one too, that because autistics have really meaningful things to say, not just to parents, but to other autistics, of course, and especially to autistic children. You know, for Nicholas going to camp, one of the, those things was seeing other autistic people there, right? That's really valuable. You know, all sorts, you see the diversity within autism and the possibility. And then it's not just you with a family trying to change you. You realize there's a whole community out there and having autistic adults who are living their lives in whatever way this person's speaking on panels and this person has gone ahead to speak at conferences as well, even though this person has some disabling aspects to their autism, you know, that can be really that could give possibility the notion of who I can be mm. in a different way. And just to go back for, for one minute, when we're talking about that circle, I mean that part like that should be happening early on from the beginning. It should be happening in schools, this, the culture of support and inclusion in schools and community groups, and then later on in workplaces and social, social groups as well, uh, so that at every, at every stage of life, you have people involved who are extracting and engaged in different perspectives from the individual. And that makes it more truthful and more, more individual self-fulfillment. 
then the parent, and you know, it's this culture, whether a child's autistic or non-autistic, and people are born into that culture. But I think for autistics especially, uh, diversifying what's around them is very valuable. And oftentimes, when someone goes to camp, actually, Tara, you might have mentioned this earlier, too. I can't remember if it was while we've been doing this recording or, or prior to it. Someone will have an experience at camp that they've never had at home. They've done, they do something they've never done before. And parents thought they couldn't do it or weren't willing to do it. But in that different context, they do. Yeah. And that's self-realization right? Maybe they never would have done it without that camp experience, or maybe we can diversify the experience in schools and in community to allow for a lot more of that. Mm -hmm. Thinking about include, like that's ultimately the key of inclusion. It isn't just about like working on that person's social skills. It's a lot bigger of an impact than that. And actually getting to what you were really highlighting, how key it is to be educating other people about what it's like to be in a diverse community too. Right. And now as Nicholas enters adulthood, he's 19 years old. He graduated high school last year. He was in the occupational course of study program and he graduated on time. Um, and now he's in a program, which of course has been suspended because of COVID-19 uh, through a community college doing internships uh, at the hospital. It's called Project Search. It's actually a nationwide program. Mm -hmm. um, as he enters adulthood, there are so many areas which need to be addressed and resolved. It's like restarting everything. You know, is he going to work? Is he going to be in a day program? What supports will he live? Where will he live? You know, what will his social community look like now that he's out of school and doesn't have kind of that, that structure there? Will mm -hmm. a child go to college or not? What's the caregiving plan? What about when there's no family left, when there are no family members? What economic means do they have to subsist? Uh, Nicholas gets SSI. What, what if he didn't get SSI? What would that look like if I wasn't here? What about choice, sexuality? What about guardianship or not? Big questions, you know, the stuff of a life. And if it's just me with Nicholas, even if I, no matter how open I am to him and to his feedback, I am just bringing my perspective and way of thinking to it by involving other people, by creating Team Nicholas, and having a circle of people that includes professionals and peers and families he's close to, different people from around with different perspectives, we become much, much more successful at honoring Nicholas's true self and expressions. Mm -hmm. oh, you brought up so many great points there. And truly, that's what a lot of families feel like they have to start over again, because at once they leave that natural support of high school, then they have to reconfigure things. So what are some common resources or tools you've turned to um, along the way or at this point now, kind of where Nicholas is now? I think a really important lesson for parents and therapists and teachers is to pay attention to autistic adults. Uh, and their, their voices are well represented as a community online. Uh, you can, of course, also do so in person whenever that's available to you. But online, some of the main places you go in social media would be Thinking Person's Guide to Autism, uh, ASAN, the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, uh, what used to be called Aut Autistic Women's Network, now Autistic Women and Non-Binary Network. And Olivine would be some of those main large ones that have a, that, that represent neurodiversity and autistic advocacy very well. Mm -hmm. At the same time, what I tend to 
drift toward. I pay attention to what those organizations are doing and what they're saying, but I tend to drift more toward individual autistic adult and teen voices. Uh, and that shifts over time. The, the, the who I'm following on social media or who I'm paying attention to on social media, what's resonating with me, what's, what's uh, relevant right now to my life or to Nicholas's life, who's saying things that I'm learning from, that I'm finding interesting and engaging or, or in synchronicity with. Uh, right, right now, for me, yeah, that's, there's a, a person named, uh, well, the social media feed is happy hands, but the first A is with a V, H-V-P-P-Y-H-A-N-D-S, okay. uh, who's an autistic person in Canada who does these amazing I don't know if you'd call them cartoons or amazing drawings that's, that express all sorts of neurodiverse uh, viewpoints that are really important and valuable. Now, this doesn't mean I agree with everything this person writes or says, but I find that perspective really engaging and interesting. The mm -hmm. neuro neurodivergent teacher, which is McAllister Greiner, uh, has a very active social media feed, the neurodivergent teacher. And neurodivergent rebel is another autistic adult uh, whose social media I've been following a lot. So I find that it shifts over time, whether mm -hmm. that person changes their voice or I change my perspective, different things resonate at different times. So it's being engaged, reading comments, clicking through to see other people's social media feeds, if they say write a comment that interests you, and just being open to different possibilities. Also, uh, I often find uh, non-American feeds very interesting because some of this conversation around uh, neurodiversity is at different places in different areas of the, of the world. And finding out how other people are thinking about and addressing things can be really valuable to kind of shake up our own models. And I'd say this about neurodiversity, it's changed. You know, those perspectives are different than they were. We had that word 10 years ago. The perspectives are different than they are now. And you can't just say, I can't just say, boy, I agree with everything in neurodiversity. A, that's not true. And B, you have to understand that 10 years from now, neurodiversity advocates will look back now and find out the things they were getting wrong. Yeah. So it's always a moving target. And that flow of information, and it's a conversation. It's a mutual engagement. And part of the challenge for me is within that, there's often an us versus them dynamic. And to make real societal change, we need to get past the us versus them dynamic to how we can work together and how we can make a difference and be more productive and intervene earlier in ways so that autistic children are not felt to be bad because they're autistic and not ostracized and not bullied, but included all along the way and accepted all along the way and respected all along the way and loved all along the way. Yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that us versus them narrative that has been appearing quite a bit. Um, it just worries me. And yeah, it's easy to fall into that trap of worrying about it when you're online. But it's, I thank you for sharing those individual accounts too. I've been following a few of those. I have another one to add to my list to look at. And I think it's key to remember too that neurodiversity, the description and the narrative is shifting all the time and it is a conversation. Yes. Two points to follow up also, Tara. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as we talk about adult life, it's really valuable for parents to know, and they don't, of younger children, that in adult life, many, you know, we use the phrase, 
the developmental delay for children. And then they turn 18 and suddenly, okay, they're adults. Now they have to live their adult life. And that doesn't make a lot of sense. Many autistics develop quite a lot in individual ways in their adult life, in their 20s and in their 30s and in their 40s and beyond. So if you're 18, your child has turned 18 and suddenly you're panicked because you think your child is frozen in place. No, he or she is living their life uh, still with plenty of room to grow and change. I think that's really important. And finally, for that, that autistic adult, and I am in exactly this position, just like for the autistic child, we want things to come out a certain way. We want to control those outcomes for our child. But we can't control outcomes for our child any more than we can control them for ourselves. And we shouldn't want to. You know, it's their life. Hopefully, we get to be a part of it but they get to live it. Yeah, that's incredibly powerful. Um, what are you excited about and looking forward to in the coming months? Uh, it's an odd time to ask <laughs> I know. that question because of COVID-19. The yes. world is skewed right now. So I'll say two things. One is that I, I have to say this, and, and it might come across as strong. I loathe writing that, well, look at all the good things coming out of this, that people are getting together and supporting each other because the impact of is so significant and not mm -hmm. just on the people who die or get very sick and their families, which of course is a terrible impact and the most mm -hmm. terrible impact, but for economically vulnerable people, for medically vulnerable people, for socially vulnerable people, for ostracized people, the loneliness now, the lack of resources now, the out of sight, out of mind aspect of that, some of the, some of the people who we're talking about, autistic people and disabled people are so vulnerable right now mm -hmm. uh, that as the economy collapses and society's uh, priorities and narratives shift, that I am scared to death for them. Uh, so I, I, I'm loath to say something good can come out of this. Right. That being said, I am noticing <laughs> that organizations, because I am on calls, I am on Zoom calls every day, all day, some WebExes, some group phone calls, but mostly Zoom, I have to say. The expansion of the use of these platforms mean that later on, assuming there is a good later on, mm -hmm. some of the organizations that have struggled to include autistic voices at the table now have better technology to do it. It's not only that they weren't familiar with the technology, it's that they're bad at using it, and they're getting better at using it with every step of the way. That means, say, on some of these advisory boards and councils I serve on or have served on in the past, which they've struggled to get autistic representatives at the table for lots of reasons, uh, because of disinterest sometimes, uh, because they don't understand the importance of having that presence at the table, because of mobility, many autistics don't drive, uh, because of all sorts of reasons. Now, someone might be, uh, because of social, that an autistic person might not be comfortable in a crowded room with an active dynamic because meetings are run in different ways. Now, as they do these remote, uh, uh, these remote platforms, they should get better at doing that and including autistic adults. And one thing is, is you've probably, if you've been on these calls, they're getting better at setting agendas, right? They need yeah. to set agendas to be able to, well, that agenda is basically visual structure that an autistic can have that can help them go through, right? The autistics can also replay the session to hear parts that were difficult for them, or it could be translated, it, pardon, not translated, uh, right. converted yeah. to, into visual, into text, right? Converted into text. And that way afterward, they can have better understanding of what happened. So I think some of these tools and, uh, and technologies 
that are improving can now, we can now go to organizations and say, we know you have the technology to do this. Have that in the room when you're having these meetings, and then you can have more autistic presence at the table, virtually, if not physically. Absolutely. Oh, and the other thing I'm really excited about, I have to say, is going to the beach. I want to go to the beach. We're up in the mountains of Western North Carolina, and I'm desperate to go to the beach. So when uh, this, the travel and social restrictions end, we're heading straight down to Charleston, <laughs> yeah, Sullivan's <laughs> Island, and Folly uh-huh. Beach, and Isle of Palms. I love those beaches. It's a three-hour straight shot, basically, on one road. And I'm from Long Island originally in New York, and I love the beach. And although there's no reason to think I would have gone to the beach during these, this time, just not being able to kind of feels, makes me feel shut in, and I want to get down to the beach. Absolutely. Jump under some waves, uh, go with my son. Yeah, I hope that happens soon. Um, and then the last one, how can people listening to this episode get into you? Oh, that's very easy, except for the spelling of my last name. So the spelling of my last name is Hemachandra, H-E-M as in Mary, A-C-H-A-N as in Nancy, D as in David, R-A. And my website is rayhemachandra.com, Ray, R-A-Y. So rayhemachandra.com. Uh, it's also called called Golden Moon Circles, but that's not the URL. And there is a contact form within that website. And then also people are welcome to reach out on Facebook, include a note saying uh, you heard about me through the podcast or about through autism. I'll definitely accept that friendship. Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter. I'm on all those platforms. Oh, great. I didn't realize that. I'll make sure to tag you there too when this comes out. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Ray, it was so great talking with you. Absolutely a pleasure, Tara. Thank you so much for having me today. All right. Thanks again to Ray for joining us for today's episode. You can check out everything that we talked about in our show notes on the AGU website. And this is also linked in the description of this episode of wherever you are listening today, which leads me to this quick ask. If you found value in this episode and know that others would benefit from listening to this podcast, leave us a rating and review. This really truly just helps others in the autism community find us easier online because people like you are saying things like hey this episode's real hey this podcast is up to date and hey this podcast is a helpful resource you know just a few things like that thank you so much again for listening to another episode of the agu podcast i'm looking forward to your episode next week and i will chat with you all soon